Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Thank you very much. I'm grateful to be here with you. I would have picked up your pastor, but I picked somebody up this summer. He weighed 320 pounds, and I blew out my hip, and I, it wasn't getting better at my age. Healing takes longer. And uh, I went to the doctor, and they found out I have arthritis in my hip, so you'll have to forgive me for not standing while you were worshiping. It was great worship this morning. Thank you very much. Um, we have been talking about refocusing. And we want to adjust the scoliosis of our lives to the plumb line of the nature and character of God. God is a God who exists in Trinity. That means essential to his nature is a relationship. He made us so that we could be in relationship with him. We will not be fulfilled if the longings of our heart do not find their object in God the Father. We discover through Christ that he came to reconcile we who were estranged by the fall so that we could re-enter into relationship with him. And now we're going to look at focusing on the ministry of the Holy Spirit who wants to take residence in our life that we might be deployed as a co-worker with God and his work in the world as we seek to see others come to know him. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's pray. Father, it would be nonsense for us to engage in this discussion this morning without asking you to fill us with your Holy Spirit, that he might have his way with us. I know, Father, that the words that are offered on a human level are so insignificant. And the fact that one person could speak in the hopes that a room full of people who have various challenges on their hearts would hear something that would be significant to him or her is ludicrous unless your Holy Spirit was involved in the transaction. Please allow your Holy Spirit to speak, the, take the feeble words that are spoken and apply them to each heart that each person here would have the affirmation of how deeply they are loved by you because you gave them something this morning they needed to hear. To that end, I pray, fill us with your spirit now. And we ask this in Christ's name, amen. Jesus' last words to his disciples were, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the earth. I'm, I'm not a big fan of trying to reduce the complexities of the Christian faith down to simplistic formulas. Nevertheless, Faith in Christ should be transferable. It should be simple enough that a child should be able to understand and complex enough that the best scholars will never plumb the depths of it. But I think there's an awful lot of confusion about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And my own experience at some, at some level testifies to this impression. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. We went to an inner city Pentecostal church. I loved these people. I'm not trying to trash them. But there was only one college graduate in that church, and there was an awful lot of misinformation, so much that I never actually heard the gospel. I was told if I went to a movie and Jesus came back while I was in the theater, I would go straight to hell. 
I desperately wanted to see Walt Disney's The Shaggy Dog, but didn't know if it was worth risking my eternal destiny to go see. And when the neighbor lady, Mrs. Greenlee, came down and asked my mom if we could go see that movie with her boys, I looked at my mother with ambivalence. I wanted to go on one hand, scared stiff on the other, and when my mom said it was okay for us to go, I began to wonder if she really loved me, that she would put my life in such (laughs) eternal peril. I was told in a Sunday school class, if I lived a holy and righteous life my whole life, but had one bad thought the last second of my life, I'd go straight to hell. What I deduced in that environment, whether it was intended or not, as a child, my impression was, if I could lose this based on what I did, I had to gain it based on what I did. And I never understood anything about the love of God and the forgiveness of Christ that would be assuring so I would have confidence in my faith. But this church believed in speaking in tongues and the Holy Spirit was something that we would get later in our life and we'd have to pursue and seek the Holy Spirit, in order to have access to his ministry in our life. And I thought that if I could go forward and somehow get the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues, maybe I'd have some level of assurance. I went to a camp. I was 12 years old. By this time, I had believed I had to earn my way to heaven. I go forward at this camp because they said they would help me speak in tongues. So I went forward and they said, you've got to put your arms up because they're your spiritual antenna. They said, you've got to put your head back so that the Holy Spirit could come down into you. They said, you've got to pray through. You've got to pray through. I had no idea what that meant. They said, you've got to hold on. You've got to hold on. And another person came up and said, you've got to let go. You've got to let go. (laughs) And now there's increased anxiety. Pretty soon a guy came and slapped his hands on my head and started shaking me. And I'm I'm starting to cry. They throw me down on the ground. Somebody comes and puts my arms up perpendicular to the ground because you've got to keep those antennas working for you. (laughs) And they told me to repeat, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I'm doing this. I'm there for three hours. Nothing happened. I remember Sister Regal every Sunday morning. She would say, shundada, shundada, shundada. I could repeat it because I heard the same thing every morning. (laughs) And Sister Fry would always go, Lydia, I see, Lydia, I see. I could repeat it. I heard it every morning. Then Brother Brooks would get up and have long King James English translations and interpretations of what they said with no repetition whatsoever. And I'm going, how come they were repeating something here, but he doesn't repeat anything when he... I didn't get it. We were so susceptible to so many things. There was a Reverend Arthur McKay who came through with an 18-week revival, and people were getting healed of all kinds of diseases I never knew they had. And one woman even said she got a gold filling in her cavity of her tooth, and McKeg had us all look in her mouth with a flashlight. We walked by the platform and looked. And I thought to myself, why didn't God just give her new enamel? Why did he give her a gold filling? <laughs> and I got skeptical about the whole thing. And among the Pentecostals, I became a cessationist who believes that these gifts don't matter. I go to college. I hear the gospel clearly for the first time that God loved me and forgave me and he wanted to enter into my life and bring order out of the chaos I had made of my life. And I trusted Christ and I went to an evangelical Quaker church where there was a lot of quiet. (laughs) Don't get me wrong, I love the Pentecostals. I learned to love gospel music, gospel uh, uh, bluegrass music. 
I love these people. I love church potlucks. I love, we were always the last family to leave the church. I love them, but that doesn't mean that the confusion wasn't there. I ended up going to seminary, and I went to a seminary where the New Testament department, they were cessationists. I thought, well, this is good. I'm looking for some rationalization for my growing experience. And, and, and consequently, the cessationists in the New Testament department taught that the sign gifts were temporary. All of us had to translate from the Greek, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And when we got to the passage in verse 8 of chapter 13, if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And we were told that the perfect is a neuter in the Greek, tautelion, so it can't be the coming of Christ. It has to be the coming of something else. And they told us it was when the scriptures came, we didn't need the sign gifts anymore to affirm the message of the apostles. I read this, and the context seemed to me totally eschatological. The context seemed to be speaking of the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ. And yet here was this, this Greek perfect in the neuter. I went to the theology department. They were not cessationists. And this one theologian who was there, we used to call him Gandalf. He was a wise and good man. And I said, I'm not getting what the New Testament department wants me to get. It is neuter, but it seems so eschatological, the context. And he said to me, what if the Tautelion speaks of the coming of the kingdom? That could be expressed in the neuter. And if the kingdom comes, the king comes with the kingdom. Bingo. What ended up happening was that among the Pentecostals, I became a cessationist. Among the cessationists, I became a charismatic. <laughs> I don't speak in tongues. I'm open. But I don't believe that the gifts have ceased. But I do believe this. The Holy Spirit is active, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit are underutilized and are essential to the flourishing of the church's ministry in the world. Because there's much confusion in these matters, I would like to lay out from Scripture what I'm discovering and then apply it to our lives relative to each of our personal responsibilities to engage in mission and our unique calling and circumstance of ministry. And I'm hoping I can give you affirmation, clarity, and give you encouragement to go do what God is calling you to do in your own environment, in your own little world where you're going to plant his flag with confidence that he wants to work in you and through you. Uh, Jesus said in Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit will come upon us and we will be his witnesses. Jesus calls us to mission and also resources us for the work. He doesn't deploy us without giving us what we need to do his work in the world. We are aided supernaturally. Dawson Trotman, who founded the Navigators, set up the follow-up program for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, preached a sermon once called Born to Reproduce. He said a person is physiologically mature when they could reproduce physiologically, and a person is spiritually mature when they could reproduce spiritually. That is, you could lead a person to Christ, mentor that person, and deploy that person so that they could lead others to Christ. If you're not there yet, don't beat yourself up, but don't let it stay like that either. You have an opportunity to grow and engage in ministry. So let's sort out the different words and terms and phrases that are used in Scripture to speak of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Number one, baptism of the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Spirit. In Mark 1.8, John the Baptist made a clarification. He said, I baptize you with water, but he, speaking of Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. 
He makes a clear distinction between the two baptisms. I would suggest to you too, even in Ephesians 4, 5, where it says there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that the essential baptism is spirit baptism. Uh, water baptism's great. We have a lot of traditions about that. That's fine. Engage the one that you're most convinced of uh, as far as your opinion as you try to be faithful with Scripture. But the essential baptism is baptism by the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For by one Spirit we are all baptized into one body. The word there for baptized is in the aorist tense. That means it's finished action, past time. The word baptized means to be placed into. If you go read Homer, and you read the Odyssey. Homer used the word baptized when um, uh, Ulysses defeats Polyphemus, the Cyclops. And it says that his eye was sizzling like the sound made when a... Um, um, ah, the guy that does horseshoeing. Blacksmith. Blacksmith, thank you very much. My wife says my mind's like lightning, one flash, then total darkness. <laughs> When the blacksmith dips, or as Homer uses it, baptizes the hot iron into the water, placing it into the water. We could hear the sizzle. Poor Polyphemus. Anyway, when does this baptism occur? When are you baptized by the Spirit? Do you have to go searching for something? No, it happens when you believe. Listen to several passages of Scripture. Romans 8, 9... You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Synonymous with belief, faith. Romans 8, 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. When you become a child of God, the Holy Spirit takes residence in your life. Galatians 3, 2. We receive the Holy Spirit out of hearing faith. Galatians 3, 5. God gives the Holy Spirit out of hearing faith. Galatians 3.14, we receive the promise of the Spirit on account of faith. Ephesians 1.3, in Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The baptism of or by the Holy Spirit is that act of the third person of the Trinity whereby He takes residence in your life and places you in the body of Christ to do God's work in that place, in the world he has assigned you. Imagine the prospects of this. I don't know about you, but I I used to always wish I could have lived during the days of the historic incarnation of Christ. Wouldn't you have wanted to have been there? To have been one of the shepherds at the shepherd's field when the angels announced, unto you a Savior is born, Christ the Lord, and rushed to that stable and seen Jesus there with Mary and Joseph. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there when Jesus at 12 years old was astounding the religious leaders in Jerusalem in the temple? Wouldn't you have loved to have been there at the uh, wedding feast of Cain of Galilee when he did his first miracle? We would tell you, don't drink too much. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there and maybe had him come to you and said, follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. I'd have loved to have seen him take leprous skin by speaking a word, made it smooth as a baby's skin. Or to see him make a person who could not see, able to see, the lame to walk. I would have loved to have eaten that meal when he fed the 5,000. I'd have loved to have seen him walk on the water. I, I, I wouldn't have wanted to be there the day he was crucified. I don't think I could have handled it. 
But I certainly would have wanted to be there when the women came back from the tomb and said, He's alive! He's alive! I'd have loved to have been there to watch the ascension as he went into heaven. But we don't live then. Those events happened once. They only needed to happen once. But we do live in the days of an incarnation. The incarnation of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. And we are all participants in that. Note how Jesus explained it to his disciples in the Upper Room Discourse. Because if you look at the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel, John's Gospel is only 21 chapters. But one quarter of that book is one night's experience with his disciples. The Upper Room Discourse, the Last Meal, his prayer in Gethsemane. And in that particular passage, he says this, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions, and were it not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you, that where I am there you may be also. And if I go to prepare a place, I will come and receive you to myself, and you know the way that I am going. And Thomas says, No, Lord, we don't. And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. It's interesting. In chapter 13, just before he had said this to the disciples, he washed their feet. And he said, when I washed your feet, I gave you an example that you might follow my steps. In John 14, when Philip says, show us the Father, Jesus says, have I been with you so long and you haven't seen the Father? Now, Jesus isn't confusing the persons of the Godhead. He hasn't drifted into Sabellian modalism and needs his theology straightened out. He makes it clear throughout John's Gospel no less than 18 times, everything the Father told me to say, I've said. Everything the Father told me to do, that I have done. He has followed the prompts of the word of the Father and modeled it to his disciples. And now he says to the disciples, I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you as an orphan. I'm going to send you another one who's going to remind you what I have said. He will tell you what to say. He will prompt you what to do. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to send you another helper. And the word that he uses there in the Greek, alas parakletos, it's another of the exact same kind. This is God, the Holy Spirit, who wants to take residence in each of our lives, actually does, but wants to be dominant in that residence. It's interesting to me, too, as we go on and read this, he says, you will do greater works because I go the Father. Greater in what way? Greater by virtue of the extraordinary nature of them. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, will empty cemeteries. I don't know if that's true. Greater by virtue of the multiplied number of the workers. I think there's something there. Greater by virtue of the fact that we who are so incompetent could do anything at all. Jesus reminded his disciples, apart from me, you can do nothing. It's maybe a little bit like the widow who gave her might. Everybody else was throwing into the, into the coffers out of their excess. The widow gave her all. And Jesus said, she gave the greater gift. Maybe it's greater like that. Or greater by virtue of the corporate increase throughout the generations of history that the church of God is triumphant. There have been times and places where circumstances have tried to squeeze us out, but all those people that have tried to trash the church and destroy it don't exist anymore. We have some in our own day, but they'll pass too. But the church will continue because the Holy Spirit's ministry is greater. Again, the baptism 
by the Holy Spirit, is one of the most underutilized resources of the church, and yet his ministry through us is essential to our mission in the world. I had two different times in my life, men come up to me and say, oh, Jerry, you've got to pray for me. I'm the only Christian at my work. I am so miserable. It's horrible. Both times I put my hand on the shoulder of the men who asked me to do this. I said, Lord, look how miserable my brother is. Please just take him home to heaven right now. Get him off the earth, you know. Both cases, they knocked their hand off, my hand off their shoulder. I said, what are you praying? I said, there's two ways you can look at your circumstances. You can be miserable, or you could say, I am strategically placed in the Holy Spirit who has his hand in my life will use me in this environment. And it can happen. I, I saw it happen in my own life. I was one of two Christians on my football team in college. We saw 60 guys come to Christ over a four-and-a-half-year period. It can happen. You matter in God's program. And you have been strategically placed for kingdom work. And you have been strategically and supernaturally resourced. The Holy Spirit is in your life if you know Christ. Now we go to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Next term. Ephesians 5, verses 1 through 18 is where we have most of that passage. It says in 5.1, Be imitators of God as beloved children. It's a fair-minded expectation that the Spirit of God is in us, that we would be imitators of God. It says in verse 2, walk in love. And then what follows it is if you have just a walk in love without the balance of truth, you can fall into all kinds of salacious, horrible things. Immorality, idolatry, all this other thing. The, the walk of love, you know, we just have to love people. That's true, you have to love people, but it's always a love mixed with truth. And so you get down to verse 8, and it says, walk in the light, walk in truth. But if you just have truth without love, you can become harsh, censorious, legalistic, pharisaical. We need the balance. How do we do it? Ephesians 5.15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but wise. You know what the word is there in the Greek for careful? Acrobos. You know an English word that sounds like that? If you're thinking acrobat, you're right. It's a balancing act. How do we do this? Balance in our life comes from being filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, And so it says in verse 18, be filled with the Spirit. And interestingly enough, that word for be filled, it's a a present passive imperative. I'm going to give you a lesson in Greek grammar. Okay, ready? I hate to do this, but it's important. The Greek verb has three components. It has tense or time. So it has present tense, it's going on now. Past tense, it happened before. Two types of past tense, ongoing action in past time, and aorist tense, completed action in past time. While Jesus was breaking the bread, imperfect, he prayed aorist, finished action past time. Okay. Then you have also... Uh, future tense, something that's going to happen, and perfect tense. As a result of something that happened now, it goes on forever. Almost every place in the scripture where it talks about salvation, what Jesus did for us at the cross has an eternal result. In the grammar, it makes it clear you're secure. Your salvation is secure. You have eternal life. It will go on forever. And then you have voice. You have an active, middle, and passive voice. So if Pastor Dave, uh, if he was told, tie your shoes... If it was an active voice, he would tie both his shoes. If it was a middle voice, he would participate in the action. He would tie one, I would tie one. If it's a passive voice, he would sit back, I would tie both of his shoes. And then you have, beyond that, a mood. An indicative mood, it's going on now. A subjunctive mood, it's something that might happen. 
you have the imperative mood, a command, it ought to happen, no guarantee. And then you have the optative mood, it's unlikely it will ever be done. This verb, be filled with the Spirit, is a present, ongoing, passive command. How do you obey a command passively? Basically, it's this. Let it be done to you. Let it be done to you. Normative Christian life is for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered by Him, to live your lives in kingdom service to the glory of Christ. I have a friend who came to Christ not long ago, and I was explaining this concept to him, and he says, I get it. It means resist less. Resist less. Let it be done to you. Be filled with the Spirit. Spirit of God's in you. Might as well walk triumphantly in Him rather than suppressing His impulse in you. Uh, Why don't we utilize the resource? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 through 3, verses 3, describes three kinds of people in the Bible. There's the natural man, the person who doesn't know God. Spirit's not in their life. There is then the spiritual person in chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, and this person is engaged in the things of God. And then you have what is called the fleshly or the carnal person. This is a person who's a believer, but they're not walking a triumphant life in Christ. This is a person who's a believer, but lives his life or her life so caught up in the things of this world that he or she has gone off the rails as far as kingdom service goes. They have a listlessness, a purposelessness. Oh, they may be on the ascendancy of something that they think is going to fulfill them, but eventually that thing that moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal is going to lead to a crash. And they're not living this dramatic, exciting life in Christ. It could be due to unconfessed sin that gets the better of us. It could be due to neglect, even indifference. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? The resources are there. Campus Crusade for Christ years ago came up with something. I heard about it when I was a freshman in college, and it's been exciting for me ever since. They talk about spiritual breathing. Spiritual breathing. And spiritual breathing, we first breathe out, then we breathe in. The exhale is to confess your sins. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The confession is to confess those things that have distracted you and kept you from walking in the Spirit. The Greek word for confess is homilageo. When a pastor goes to seminary, they take a class in homiletics. Same word. It means to say the same thing. The pastor gets up and does as best he or she can to say what the scriptures have to say. Say the same thing. Homilageo, homiletics. When I confess my sin, I'm saying to God what he already knows about me and I'm coming into a level of self-awareness. I haven't been walking with God the way I should. I haven't been utilizing the resources that he's made available to me the way that I should. Father, I confess my sin to you. Thank you for forgiving me so completely that I can get back on my feet once again. Inhale. Be filled with the Spirit. So I say to the Lord, Father, I want to obey. Let it be done to me. Fill me with your Spirit. And how do you know he's going to fill you with his Spirit? It says this in 1 John 5, verses 14 through 15. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Is it his will for you to be filled with the Spirit? Absolutely. 
You ask Him to fill you with your, His Spirit. It says, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. Pray it. Believe it. I pray this over and over every day. I say, Lord, I, 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 my attitude wasn't so good there. Lord, I, I didn't say what I should have said to encourage this dear, well-meaning brother or sister. I confess that to you. I, I want to be a good evaluator of my life so I can grow and get better. I confess that. Please fill me with your spirit. And I trust that he has. And I want to walk in the spirit. Then you have baptism. You have filling. Now we have the gifts of the Holy Spirit. The gifts of the Holy Spirit. And there are many. They're listed in Romans 12. They're listed in 1 Corinthians 12. But these lists are an exhaustive list. You know who the first people were filled with the Spirit in Scripture? The two artists that were filled with the Spirit to make artistic work for the tabernacle in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. It could be an artistic gift. Now, Samson was filled with the Spirit uh, for feats of strength. I remember I used to pray that all the time when I played football. Lord, give me the Spirit you gave to Samson. I think I need it on this next play. What can we say about these gifts? All of us are to serve in these various ways, but some are uniquely prompted and given an aptitude in particular areas. I had a pastor one time came to me and says, Oh, Jerry, we like to encourage the people in our church with the gift of evangelism to uh, engage in evangelism, as if everybody else got a pass. I said, I want to come preach at your church so I can tell all the people that don't have the gift of giving they don't have to give anymore. And I don't want to go to the church where only those with the gift of mercy are being merciful and kind. That would be a cold-hearted place, wouldn't it? We're all supposed to function in all these areas, but some people have a special aptitude about it. The scriptures aren't clear about the number of gifts we might have or if they can change, but the scriptures are clear about this. You have one, and it is for you to serve, and it is a service rendered that others might come to maturity in Christ. We always want to understand ourselves. We have things like the Enneagram, the Myers-Briggs uh, personality inventory, the Taylor-Johnson temperament analysis test. We're always reading these things, trying to understand ourselves. The gifts are not given like that. The gifts are always given to resource you to serve others, not serve yourself. To think about your responsibility to others. They're outward. Then lastly, we have the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things where, in walking of the Spirit, we begin to take on the flavor and characteristics of Christ and his work in the world. I knew a man once who used to work with the Torchbearers Ministry in England. His name was John Hunter. He used to come to the church I started going to after I became a Christian. And he would do ministry at that church um, every year he'd come through. And, and he was a Brit, and he said that he and his wife, Christine, were at Westmont College in Santa Barbara one time. Christine wanted a cup of tea. So she went to the student cafeteria, and she said to the student working behind the counter, could I have a cup of tea, please? And the guy said, sure, no problem. Grabbed a styrofoam cup, went to the tap, turned it on, put his finger under it until it got kind of hot, then put the cup underneath it, and then he said, handed her that cup of lukewarm water with Tea bags that looked like they were wrapped in surgical gauze, right? Tea bags. And he said, the guy started going like this before he handed it to her, and there you go. He says, you Americans have no clue how to make tea. He says, you've got to take a kettle and get the water rolling, boiling. Then you take the kettle and you pour the hot water into the teapot. 
and put a tea cozy over it. I had no idea what he was talking about. It was a quilt for the teapot, right? You put it over the pot, and then you get the kettle rolling boiling again. When the kettle's rolling, rolling boiling, you're also getting a tea infuser. It's a ball, and you open it up, and you put tea leaves in the ball, and you tighten it up. And when the kettle's rolling boiling again, you take the tea cozy off the pot, throw that water out. It was just put there to make the pot hot. Then you put the tea infuser there. Then you put the new rolling boiling water into the pot, put the cap on the thing, and put the tea cozy over it and sit and wait. And he said, in time, that water is transformed. It doesn't anymore look like water. It doesn't smell like water. It doesn't taste like water. The tea has been infused in that water and has been transformed. The fruits of the Spirit are that kind of tea infusing of the Holy Spirit in our lives, where when we do ministry, we won't be obnoxious, or if we are, we'll learn from it, confess our sins, and ask God to fill us with His Spirit so that we would do better next time. We won't be obnoxious. We'll do it with the flavor and aroma of Christ about us. That's the goal. When we fail, the Spirit will nudge us. We need to spiritually breathe, increase our confidence in God's unconditional love and forgiveness and mission. Now what do we do? Spirit's residence is in your life. You can be filled with the Spirit. You've been given gifts. And you have the fruits of the Spirit. Now I would suggest you follow his prompts. Jesus said he'll help you know what to say. And he'll help you know what to do. He never gives prompts contrary to his word, so don't worry about it. We're always supposed to take the, the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and these work in collaboration. But if the things don't always go the way you think they should, if you follow the prompts, don't worry about that either. God may be giving you a prompt to talk to somebody about Jesus. You talk to them, they don't respond. But you don't know if you're number five when that person comes to faith, number nine, or maybe number 12 who walks them across into the kingdom. I can tell you stories. I remember sitting at my office at Wheaton College not long ago, and I got a phone call from a guy. When I wrestled in college, there were two guys I would talk to about Jesus. They were two years younger than me. When they found out that I was a Christian and I talked to them about Jesus, they brought it up every wrestling practice after that for the next two years. And they would make fun and they would laugh. Not too much. I was older. I could whoop them on the mat. But nevertheless... They did not respond, and I talk with them daily about Jesus. And I get this phone call in my office. Jerry, this is a voice from your past. I said, yeah, who is it? He says, it's Joe. I said, Joe, did you ask Jesus in your heart yet? And he said, yes, I did. That's why I'm calling you. He said, two years after I graduated, which was four years after I last saw him, he got a job with Morgan Stanley in Los Angeles. He said a guy took him to a Christian businessman's meeting and shared the gospel with him. He heard it. He was followed up in a navigator discipleship program. He started leading people to Jesus. He said, I just came from a, a, a Christian businessman's meeting this last week. They said, somebody was a link and you're coming to Christ. You never heard the end of the story. Call him and tell him. He said, when you shared with me, it was not for naught. And I wanted to call you and thank you. You don't know where you are in the process, but you do know this. The Holy Spirit does know. And when he prompts you, follow the prompt. And he gives us prompts economically. You follow the prompts, you're going to get more prompts. You don't follow the prompt, don't worry about it, confess it, get back on track, and listen. Listen to his prompts in your life. And have fun. 
Have fun. I got on an airplane a while back. I was coming back from a theology conference. I sat by the window. A minute later, a guy comes and sits in the middle seat, and he says, rats, I've got a middle seat. If I'd have been really spiritual, I probably would have given him my seat, but I didn't do that. <laughs> a minute later, a guy comes and sits on the aisle. We're flying back from Texas. Sits on the aisle, and he says, Professor Root. I said, you got the drop on me. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know you. I don't remember you anyway. And he says, I was at the paper you read at the theology conference. And, and so we start talking. He was a, a student at Trinity Seminary working on his Ph.D. And we start talking, and I get the prompt. Don't talk over this guy. And I turned to the guy in the middle seat, and I said, what's your name? He said, Sean. I said, Sean, please forgive me. We just were at a theology conference, and we don't mean to talk over you. Please feel free to be a part of this conversation. <laughs> After another minute or two, I turned to Sean. And I said, Sean, are you a spiritual person? He said, I am. I am. I said, tell me about that. He said, I went and studied with a shaman once in Peru. You know, you want to go, ah. Oh. But you, 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 you don't do that. That shows some sort of spiritual hunger. And the scriptures say, God will not put out the smoking flax. He likes to fan these things into a flame. I said, Sean, tell me about that. He said, I saw I could study under a shaman. In Peru, so I saved my money and I saved my vacation time. I went there for three weeks. I said, how did that go for you? He said, it was the worst money I ever spent in my life. But he has some prompt. He is spiritually hungry. We start talking to him. And I said to him, Sean, you know what's in it for me? He said, no, what? I said, I can't believe this, but the God of the universe knows me. He knows all about me, all my shortcomings and everything, and he loves me unconditionally. I don't know a person who's lived a moment of honest life who doesn't long to be loved by that, like that. And I said, not only that, it says that he forgives me of all my sins, and I don't know a person who's lived honest life who fails to recognize they're messed up. And not only that, he says he'll enter my life as Lord and start to bring order out of the chaos of things I've made of it. He said to me, that's the most encouraging thing I have ever heard in my life. I said, Sean, is there any reason why you wouldn't want to trust Christ right now? Even that was a prompt. I, I got the feeling. Ask him if he wants to trust Christ right now. And he prayed with me on the phone out loud. I mean on the phone, on the plane out loud to trust Christ. The guy sitting on the aisle seat working on his doctorate was working on an apologetics. He's used to building scaffolding. He's not used to obstetrics. And here's this guy born again right in front of him. And this guy was so enthusiastic, he turns to Sean and starts doing follow-up with him. Sean lived in Toronto. We got his address and started sending him material, found a church that was in his area that we could encourage him to go to. Follow the prompts. Follow the prompts. I want to tell you another story, if I can. Years ago, I was a youth pastor in Southern California. And we would take our kids on a mission trip to Mexico, to the Mexicali Valley just south of El Centro, which if you go to the bottom of the state of California, the city that's right in the middle of the bottom is El Centro, California, and we were going down in that valley just below it. Um, this group that we went with was called UGO, Youth Unlimited Gospel Outreach, and they would go to different villages, and they would assign teams to those villages, and the team that we were assigned to, I got a whole file on them. They had never seen response in this village, ever. 
And we would go, and we had our, our youth group had several teams, but the team that I was leading, we, we would have eight weeks where we did prep work. So we would go down, and we, the, the day would go something like this. We would be in the uh, El Centro. We slept on the floor of this church, and we would have Bible study in the morning. We'd have breakfast. Then we would load up in cars. We'd have lunch and load up in cars and go down to the village where we would work. Our village was about an hour and a half south of there. And we would go into the village and do vacation Bible school and crafts with the children. Then we would go out and have a sack dinner. And then we would go back and we would have a worship service. And there was a man in the village who let us use the lean-to on the side of his house. His name was Jesus Alvarez, El Servicio en la Casa de Jesus Alvarez a las seis. Six o'clock, the worship service at Jesus' house. We show up and all the kids come out to play games. I had told our team, we're not going to prepare in those eight weeks. You have your group that you're working with, you prepare on your own. When we're together for those eight weeks, this was the prompt I felt. We're praying. And we spent two hours on our knees praying for that village every day. I felt that's what we should do. I felt the prompt. We had two translators, Mina Latapi and April Rendon. I knew them well. Spanish was their first language. They went to my church. So I had them, but I didn't have male translators. I wasn't going to get them until we got down there. We prayed diligently. We have prepared our hearts for this week of ministry. And we get down to El Centro, and I get assigned my two male translators. Prudentio, who was about 80 years old, and Jose, who was a gangbanger from East Los Angeles who had come to faith about six months before. I thought, Lord, what are you doing? We've been praying. Why did you give me this old man who's probably going to have a heart attack while we're on the mission trip? And why did you give me this gangbanger, new Christian, who's probably going to be doing drugs between the houses sometime? And I, I'm second-guessing things. We go to the village. The kids come out. We go to church that night. An old lady, two teenage girls, and all the kids show up. Not one adult from that t- town apart from that old lady showed up. I said, Lord, I don't get it. We did what I thought you wanted us to do. I tried to follow the prompt. We've been praying. Please, Lord, meet us. And, and, and you gave me these two translators. What was that all about? Next day we show up. The kids come out for the vacation Bible school. And I look at Prudentio and I look at Jose and I said, come on, we're going to go visit every house. And we went and knocked on every house in that village. A man would come to the door. And we would invite him to the service. And then Jose would talk about some of his experience. And Prudentio would talk about some of his experience in Spanish to these men. That night when we showed up, that old lady wasn't there that night. Those two teenage kids weren't there that night. And none of the children were there that night. But every man in that village came. I was stupid. I didn't understand culture. I didn't understand cultural values. I didn't understand that the Latin culture values age. And they had such respect for Prudentio. I didn't understand that they knew about East L.A. And if a gangbanger came to Jesus, there must be some power in this thing. And those two guys shared their testimony. And every man in that village gave his heart to Jesus that night. And the next night when we came back, every person in the village showed up for the service. Because when the dad said, you show up, they showed up. (laughs) Revival broke out that week. Revival broke out. We reported it to Yugo people. During that next year, they followed those people up. The next year, we went back to the same village. 
People from that village were now going out to other villages. Follow the prompts. They may not always go as dramatic, but they're going to take you someplace because the guy who's in charge, he's going to be directing your heart. And it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. I don't know how much time we have, so consequently I probably won't tell you about the time I was able to share Jesus with Ronald Reagan at a riot at UCLA in 1969. (laughs) You want to hear that? All right, but it's following the prompts. When I was a kid, I was involved in, in, in youth and government with the YMCA. And we went up to Sacramento and we would debate in the state legislature. And I got to meet Ronald Reagan a couple times while, we, while I was a high school student. I was in his office three different times, one time with six other people, one time with two other people, and one time it was just me and one other guy. And then I got invited to work on his campaign when he ran for favorite son candidate from California in 1968. That was the year that Nixon won the nomination. And I met him 35 times at least over the years. So anyway, I come back to college and I become a Christian and, and I'm out sharing Jesus with people, with my friends. And it was the day of campus unrest. I went to Whittier College. That's where Nixon had gone. We had riots and protests on campus regularly. You, maybe even some of you who are older remember watching on national news. You could see Cal Berkeley. You could see Whittier College. You could see the Vietnam War and stuff. And, and we would share Jesus with the protesters. We heard there's going to be a big protest at UCLA. 1969, April, and my friends and I went to share Jesus with the protesters. They were going to let 40 people into the Board of Regents meeting, and the Board of Regents were going to decide if they should raise the tuition in the UC schools. So you had people coming down from uh, uh, San Francisco, you had people come, Cal Berkeley, you had people coming from UC Santa Barbara, coming up from UC San Diego, thousands of students there to protest. Forty students were going to get in the meeting. My roommates and I got in the meeting. We didn't even go to a UC school. They gave us the agenda, a third of the way down the agenda, time for discussion on raising the tuition at the UC schools, and right below it, time for student comment. So we were all given the agenda. A few minutes later, the regents come walking in, and Reagan's among them, and all of a sudden, The students start screaming obscenities, picking up chairs, throwing them across the room. It was crazy. And the moderator gets up and says, if you students riot like that again, you'll have to leave. And don't leave. We want you here. You can see on the agenda, we want to hear what you have to say. As soon as he said that, they started throwing the chairs, screaming obscenities, and the moderator said, you're out. Regents left to a room over there. There was a hallway this way. My roommates and everybody else went that way. There was a door there. I said, go through the door. I I sensed this. I've never heard an audible voice from God, but I sensed the prompt. I went through the door. As soon as I went through the door, the governor was as close. Governor Reagan then was as close as you are to me, Pastor Dave. And I went up to him. I said, Governor Reagan, I don't know if you remember or not. My name is Jerry Root. I worked (laughs) on your campaign in Miami, Florida last summer. And, and, And since that time I've become a Christian, I'm here with a bunch of Campus Crusade for Christ people. And we're sharing Jesus with people. Have you ever heard of the four spiritual laws? I knew I didn't have much time, so I had to say it fast. He put his arm around me. He said, Jerry, I didn't remember your name, but I remember your face. He said, I came back from Miami extremely discouraged. And I went and met with my pastor, Don Moomau, at Bel Air Presbyterian Church, and he led me to Christ when I came back from Miami. 
And next month, I'm going up to Arrowhead Springs for a weekend of Bible studies with Bill Bright. And, and he, he said, I've got to get back in this meeting, though. But how about if you lead, read the four laws to three of my aides? So he took me from, this was the meeting where they were meeting. This was the meeting where, room where I met Reagan. And he put me in a room back in this corner. And I'm going through the four laws. While I'm going through the four laws, my roommates told me that what happened outside was the students got on the bullhorn and said they wouldn't allow free speech. They didn't say, we messed up your opportunity to have representation in the meeting because we acted obnoxious. They put the onus on them. And all of a sudden, the students start pounding on the walls. This room had no windows, but it had transoms, and pretty soon there's beer bottles coming through, rocks coming through, glasses shattering, and I'm at, and law two says, man is sinful and separated from God. Two of the guys got up as if they could do something, but the one guy sat through the whole thing, and he says, I want to find out more about this. I'm going to go with the governor when he goes up to Arrowhead Springs. I come walking out of that room, and as soon as I came walking out of that room, lights and cameras are on in the room where I'd talk with the governor. And I hear this reporter live from UCLA at the riots, and I hear him say, right when I walk out of the room, we do know there was one student who was able to talk to the governor. And the lights and camera people are going like this. He turns around and comes running over to me. He says, what did you say to the governor? And I start witnessing about Jesus on live TV. Have fun. Have fun. Doesn't always go well. Don't worry. Somebody else is in charge. Be faithful. Follow the prompts. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you would take this congregation and in the power of the Holy Spirit, you would unleash them on their world with gentleness and love and grace and forbearance and patience. And I pray that they would see lives change around them. And I pray that they would be faithful to follow the prompts. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.